Benjamin Beard, welcome back. It's been up like two and a half, three years since we talked. I don't know how the hell that happened. I apologize because I enjoy our conversations. And we're going to have one today that was inspired by you and the book that you wrote that was one of our first or earlier talks, uh, The South Never Plays Itself. I still have my, uh, my uncorrected proof here. Um, in that book, you talked about a lot of films that are centered around the South and sort of the conversations around them and the interpretations of them and the interpretations of the film on, on the South, of the South, I should say. And one of the films that was mentioned in there was Gone with the Wind. <clears throat> Um, and I have never seen Victor Fleming's Gone with the Wind, or at least I hadn't up until about five days ago. Uh, so I thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to finally catch up with you, catch up, you know, talk to somebody about this film. Why not start with uh, with an expert? Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. First of all, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine, Ian. Thanks for having me back. Uh, and yeah, I've, uh, I've missed you. I've kind of been keeping track of, of your... Uh, ascent and career a little bit and we know some people in common now so I've been kind of you know sort of seeing how you were doing but yeah I uh it's been too long yeah well and we'll talk about uh the future of conversations coming up um I won't I don't want to give away too much here at the beginning we'll talk about it at the end but you've got a new book uh forthcoming that's very exciting we'll talk about some some future movies but um yeah Victor Fleming's Gone with the Wind why am I bringing this up now? Well, I'll just give you the, the short version of a very long, boring story. Okay. But uh, my wife and I, back in 2004, we got married in a movie theater, the Pickwick Theater in Park Ridge, Illinois. And uh, they announced at the end of last year that they were closing uh, after being open for a very, very long time. And they were planning to go out with a screening on their big mega screen. It's like an old movie palace, but they've got nice seats now and like the same huge screen. Uh, they're going to show Gone with the Wind because that was the first movie they screened at that theater and they wanted it to be the last. So, you know, me being corny and tied to, you know, anniversary dates and milestones, I thought, hey, let's go see Gone with the Wind because my wife and I, neither of us had seen it. So we played hooky last Thursday. We went to go see it. Fortunately, the Pickwick has recently announced that they uh, have found new ownership. So they're going to do a big reopening. So the theater will go on. As well, my memories of Gone with the Wind because I was floored by this movie i knew absolutely nothing about it aside from the iconic poster uh the classic line frankly my dear i don't give a damn and basically you know kind of the iconography of the the wardrobe i knew that hattie mcdaniel won the oscar for playing mammy and that's the sum total of my knowledge of gone with the wind my wife and i both thought it was this big sweeping southern romance that was also about the civil war and, and slavery somehow and had become very problematic especially in recent years so, boy, were we wrong. <laughs> uh, ben, what do you feel about, before we get into what's your history with Gone with the Wind, and where do you, like, what, what are your kind of high-level thoughts on it? Okay, well, so uh, I was born in Atlanta, where Margaret Mitchell was born, and Gone with the Wind was an um, ever-present uh, artifact, I guess, in our my family growing up. Uh, both my mom's family who they're from Southern Louisiana and my dad's family, that's sort of all over the place, but they, uh, my dad and my mom and most of the people in the South and everyone in Atlanta had kind of latched on to Gone with the Wind as a, uh, one of the great and important stories. And I'm, I'm going to talk about my own 
feelings in a minute, but I'm just yep. giving you my, okay. So uh, I don't remember when I became aware of it. That's how interwoven it was in my childhood. Um, I didn't watch it beginning to end till I was in my twenties. I did see it when I was a kid, but not, I couldn't ever, I mean, I love movies, but I wasn't able to sit still for three hours or whatever. It was, it's four hours long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I, I mean, I don't even, yeah. So I couldn't sit still for that long when I was a kid, but um, it's a big, it's a, it's a big deal in the world. I have some anecdotes to share in a minute. It's a big deal in our country. It's a big deal in our history. And all of that is, it's even a bigger deal in the South. And so, and Margaret Mitchell um, is such a strange uh, presence in American letters and, and cinema because she only wrote one novel. And so it's weird to have one novel be the, like one of the best-selling novels in the history of the world. It's a strange, but so uh, the film, I watched it for the first time when I was uh, 28, I believe, beginning to end. And the, re the reason the novel has any importance for me is that my wife read it and liked it when she was a kid and she grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And it's one of the reasons she decided to move to Atlanta after college. One of the like appeal of the South was this book. Uh, and that's where we met. So, the, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah, the book has played a role in my life, uh, even if I don't uh, subscribe to the mythology of the book. Right. So the, the problem, the, the problem with Gone with the Wind, you said my high level thoughts, but the problem is in a way quite simple. It's an artifact uh, that it assemble. It's three things. It's a historical artifact. Mm -hmm. It's a symbol. And then it's also a film, right? A work of art. And as a film, it's a roaring success, right? It's it's an astonishing, the, the length of it, and yet it's compelling throughout, yeah. right? Like it's like, it works. So as a film, it's, a, it's incredible. It's got great performances. And the MGM art design is like, it, you know, incredible, right? As an artifact, it's troubling and complex and tied to the novel, right? But as a symbol, it's uh, uh, incredibly disturbing because <laughs> bad people basically, you know, uh, not bad people, people who want to idealize slavery have grappled, have grabbed on and glommed on to this, this book, right? Back both then and now. And uh, Pat Conroy, who a liberal guy, and he wrote, a bunch of novels that were made in films. He has this book called My Reading Life, which I read randomly about a year ago. And he talks about how Gone with the Wind was the, the biggest influence on him as a novelist. His mother loved it. And it was the, uh, it was like a driver of their family in a lot of ways. And I have this quote from him. I wrote it down. Uh, the book Gone with the Wind shaped the South I grew up in more than any other book. What Mitchell caught so perfectly was the sense of irredeemable loss and of a backwater Camelot, Camelot corrupted by the mannerless intrusions of insensate invaders. The Iliad with a Southern accent burning with humiliation. Um, and I think the, uh, so yeah, the movie 
okay i know we have you have stuff to say but let, let me no let I, me just i'm, say I'm that. here okay. for i'm here for a conversation i'm i'm anxious to hear okay. your thoughts on it because so, mine are not fully formed all right so so he he has i have a whole it's a long quote i'm not going to read all of it but basically he goes through how this was the um he calls it the last great posthumous victory of the confederacy right and he's not the only one who says that pat Conroe. like the novel was it was such a big seller and southerners glommed onto it first and it was a out of that kind of revisionist the southern revisionists who tried to recast the civil war as something beyond just the power politics of slavery right being like allowed into the future states or being outlawed right like so they tried to recast the civil war so the book comes out of that and uh the the criticism of the film i think is twofold the the, the problems with the film are twofold one this it could not fully escape from the subject matter like david selznick who was the producer and he was a super hands-on producer he did not want to make a racist film he had passed on remaking Birth of a Nation, which was the first blockbuster. He passed on it, he didn't want to do it. He was like, I don't have anything to do with that. So he wasn't uh, unaware of the power and damage of a movie, the movie could cause, right? So he wanted to make sure uh, that the movie did not uh, demonize black people black citizens during reconstruction it does right. a little bit of that but he was really he was really aware of that well i mean there's the you're talking about the the one scene pretty much with the carpet bagger right or yes other instances yeah yeah and he says and he's wrote in a memo i think we have to be awfully careful that the negroes come out decidedly on the right side of the ledger now we don't use that term anymore but the point is he was trying to he knew he knew that that the book was problematic and so uh that's part one, right? The, the movie absorbs inherently. The movie and the novel have become intermingled. Well, Two, let me pull over. I want to pull yeah. over just a second before you get to the yeah. second point, because I think that's very important um, in terms of my sense of the film. You've Your wife read the novel. I can't remember. Did you say that you have read the novel subsequently to seeing I, the film? I, am, I read her letters a lot of her letters and some of her other work. I didn't read, I I missed out my time when I was interested. I was never interested in like historical romances or historical novels. And so uh, I've just, it's, it's, it's such a long novel with so much baggage. I read all the time, but I can't like, like on a Thursday afternoon, but like, you know, I'm going <laughs> to crack open Gone with the Wind. So I, I mean, no, I, guess I haven't read the reason I bring that up is I want to know, um, maybe your wife has a sense of this, or maybe you've picked up on it. How different, I guess, thematically and in terms of these kind of racial issues is the novel from the book? Or, sorry, there, the, there, the novel from the movie. So there's a scene, uh, there's one crucial scene where she, uh, Scarlett, wants believe a character uh, uh, is insolent towards, towards her after the mm -hmm. war. And she says something to the effect in her mind, you know, I wish we were back when I could have like, this person could have been whipped for that. Like if it was a black character. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, she comes out of, the novel is saying it was better. It was better when the South had slavery 
and plantations and the North just left them alone. And yeah. so that's a very, very tough beginning point for any, for any work of art. Right. I mean, that's like, that's a tough, and it's not just the character. I know what you mean. Like there's, you can write a great novel about like racist characters. I think we're novelists are um, actually scared to do that anymore, but uh, the book itself, right. The book itself is doing that. Well, but, and that's, that's kind of my question because, you know, and we'll get into this. I don't think the movie has that same attitude. No. And, and that's, that, that's kind of one of the distinctions I'm trying to make is the, I understand the, the novel was insanely successful. The film up until I think James Cameron came along with Titanic was the number one film of all time for like, right. you know, six decades or whatever it was. A four-hour um, movie about like a, a gun runner and a plantation owner. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's so, a, but I'm, so what I'm saying is that doesn't happen if the only people buying tickets are Southerners. No, something captured a popular imagination, you know, worldwide, essentially. So the, I'm just trying to figure out: is there something in the novel that didn't translate to to the film? Because when I talk about the movie and and that, that I don't want to necessarily. Uh, say, well, I don't think the movie's particularly racist, so the novel can't be. The novel no, could very well have it uh, is. the scene well, you described is troubling. Yes, it's. <laughs> the, I mean, so, well, I, okay, I, I think I know why the movie's popular, but let me let me speak to this. My sort of second thing I was yes. trying to say is that right. I believe the movie it has undeniable power symbolic power and real power you know in our country because it's um 80 years old right or something it's about 80 years old and um donald trump when he was on the campaign trail and uh running against joe biden and uh covid is like here and i used to play this when i would do talks and stuff he is when parasite wins best picture he is at a he's at a rally and he says well you know um what the hell is this all about uh let's get gone with the wind can we get gone with the wind back please and like everyone's cheering yeah and that's crazy that is crazy and by the way i'm actually i i have plenty i have nothing but disdain for that guy but his using that as like a cultural sort of signpost or like it's not weird an 80 year old movie. I mean, there's only a few films that translate like that, you know? Yeah. And so the movie has this power uh, that I think some of it's actually hard to get at why it has so much power. But um, so this gets to my second point, right? It's used in a lot of negative ways. And people on Twitter who aren't film critics, who aren't scholars, who are, I'm not a scholar, but who aren't academics, I'm not an academic either, but like, non-film people often uh, group Gone with the Wind and with Birth of a Nation and some other like racist Hollywood films and they do it casually right and so what ends up happening is Gone with the Wind has also accrued some baggage that it's not that's not really there I, I mean right and and this is this kind of gets to the heart of my confusion coming out of that four-hour film I think this is a brilliant movie I think it's a masterpiece I think it deserves all the acclaim that it's gotten, but I'm confused as to that acclaim and why, to sort of your point, people who are, you know, contemporary racists or want to recapture uh, the, the better days, as it were, 
right. uh, would glom onto this movie because this is not a flattering movie. They haven't to watched the South. They haven't watched it. Right. And that's here's the thing. There was there was audible groans and boos in the theater I went to. And I'll con- consider we went to a one o'clock in the afternoon showing on a Thursday. Okay. The place was pretty packed. We were That's surprised. We, right. right. And and a lot of the audience, I mean, there were people who were saying, oh, yeah, I saw this the last time it was here. I'm like, wow. <laughs> um, but the, so this the disclaimer pops up before. That's the first thing we see on the screen is the now famous disclaimer, like when HBO Max or whatever right. pulled this film from their library and then popped it back up later once they had a disclaimer saying, you know, stuff like the the racist views of this movie and all this other stuff. And it's it's presented and we're presenting it contemporarily, but things were different back then. Right. People were booing that. And I think I didn't quite understand it in full until after I saw the movie. They weren't booing it because they're like, you know, how dare you, you know, say something against our inherent racism. It was that this is not a racist movie. There is racism in it. Right. And they... I know the criticism that it doesn't sufficiently portray the horrors of slavery, but that's not what it's about. It's about the people who own those slaves and it's not kind to them just as history has not been. Right. I think it's kind of perfect because the the slavery element is out of sight, out of mind to them, just as it kind of has to be for the audience. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's still a puzzlement to me. I, yeah, I don't think a lot of the people who, reference gone with the wind is some kind of like a champion uh you know uh homage to the south have watched it or even if they, they have watched it they haven't understood it which is no they too. haven't watched it right they haven't watched it and and the people who associate it and connect it to birth of a nation haven't watched they probably haven't watched either film they've seen highlights uh on youtube probably they've uh um might have seen it when they were kids or in a film studies class in college or something, but yeah. they haven't looked at it closely. You know, that that's what I've, I came to the same, I come to the same conclusion. I mean, I think the movie, I think the movie's power for me is the character of Scarlett O'Hara, who is a singular character, wonderful <laughs> character. Vivian Lee does a great job and her art story arc where she's vain and petty and small-minded and spoiled, right? And then goes through the horror of the war and becomes not a saint, but becomes a kind of ambitious, um, indomitable force for, you know, a new pragmatic, I don't know, Southern capitalism or I don't know, I'm not phrasing it correctly, but so no, her I'm- character is incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I was not ready for this film on so many different levels because there's a it's part funny. of me. Yeah. Well, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, it's just funny. Cause it's such a, uh, it's such a well-known film, but I, I get your point. It's a well-known film, but I mean, a lot of people haven't seen it anymore. I mean, you know, it's, you know, well, it's, you know, there's talk about, and I've discussed this on different episodes of this show in recent years, but there's a narrative now that, you know, the strong independent kick-ass woman is a relatively new phenomenon in cinema. Nope. Um, but it's not. And I was not expecting of all films gone with the wind to be one of the earliest examples that we have Yeah. because yes, yeah, Scarlett O'Hara, as we meet her uh, in the opening film, she's being courted by these different kind of brain dead, horny suitors. She yeah. is spoiled. The movie knows that she's spoiled and makes fun of her. I mean, I it's going to sound terrible, but 
for years because I knew nothing about the film. I knew that Hattie McDaniel had won the Oscar for playing the maid. Essentially, I was like, how is that possible? Because I would have thought because of the reputation of this film that she was maybe a side character with like five lines right. or something. But no, she's an integral part of sure. the story. And she is she appears throughout the film and she grows along with the characters. But what I loved is that, you know, she gives like a lot of the it's going to sound weird. A lot of the racism, the overt racism in this movie is her openly calling people in the house that she works in white trash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, right. and not, you know, and not getting, you know, yelled at or reprimanded or whipped or anything for it because she is part of the family. I understand that's, that is also one of the criticisms of the movie is that it kind of romanticizes the relationship of these, you know, the people who are working in the house with the people who own the house. But, uh, yeah. So, but when Scarlett O'Hara, uh, by the end of the film, she is a tragic character. She's a damaged character. She's kind of an awful person along with right. Rhett Butler. So, and he mentions this, they find each other and they're sort of dancing around this romance, but they're both kind of scummy people. And that's why they're there. That is their attraction in a way, but she, own, she comes to own her own business. She, shoots a yankee soldier in the yeah. face who's about to do yeah. some awful things to her it's a good I mean, scene she, yeah she's a take charge you know incredible character and i feel like if this movie didn't have the baggage that it does you could show gone with the wind yes a four-hour movie in the age where there are avengers movies and and avatar 2 which are like three hours long right you pop an intermission in there you could put this up i think people would lose their shit yes of course over the racial themes but over the portrayal of Scarlett O'Hara as this fierce character from yeah. 80 years ago. And it's a better movie than those other films, but yes, yeah, yes. for sure. <laughs> uh, what people talk, well, I, I, you know, we've lost our, um, I, I have it in the South never plays itself, but the little foxes and Jezebel both came out around the same time. Jezebel stars Betty Davis, who was the first was supposed to be um, Scarlett O'Hara. She was Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, a whole bunch of actresses were up for it. Paulette Goddard um, and Joan Crawford were all like in the running. Okay. But um, Betty Davis stars in Jezebel and she's also a very similar character. I mean, they were trying to like steal Gone with the Wind's, you know, market or commerce. So it came out a year earlier, but same thing. She's in charge of everything. She's driving the plot. She's a very complicated character. Uh, and then Little Foxes, also Betty Davis, a couple of years later, same thing. She's driving the plot. She's the most interesting character on screen. Um, she gets all the great lines. So, I mean, yeah, I think that there's this notion that it, because of the 90s and the early 2000s, when there were no good roles for women, especially the early 2000s, I, I look back and I'm like, what happened, right? I mean, just what happened? Like, but um, yeah, I, it's, but this one is singular because she's such a great character. And that's like, I mean, she's so complicated and because she's sort of a villain, not a villain, but she's not a nice person. She's, she pre she, she's ahead of like Tony Soprano, right. Or Vic Mackey on the shield or Don Draper, you know, she's like a little bit of everything. Um, and Rep Rep Butler's a great character. And, um, He's a sort of roué and a rake and cynical and detached, and he doesn't really care about anybody. And he kind of <laughs> becomes a more romantic 
he changes. He's a sort of a, a bit of a better man at the end of the movie in a way, but like, it's a great performance from Clark Gable. He's perfect. The the early scenes where they're having this kind of non flirtation it's very much like a, a Han Solo Princess Leia kind of like we're attracted, but we also kind of hate each other. Um, right. That's that's wonderful. Like their intro scene where she throws the dish at the at the painting, and then he pops up from the couch because he was she had just been rebuffed by this person that she liked, and uh, he's like, well. You know, that was interesting. Um, but then by, by the end of the film, after they've been through all of this mess together, including the birth and death of a child, spoiler alert, um, you know, I didn't understand the gravity of, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn until I saw at the end of Gone with the Wind because it's a pop culture right. staple, you know? Yeah. But it's a powerful line because oh, yeah. they've been through so much together and he's just, you know, he, yeah, he kind of grows up, becomes an adult when he has a daughter now there's that weird kind of line where he says you know she's she's all mine or she belongs to me or something like that but he says it in an affectionate way i didn't get like a creepy like power hungry vibe from it i get the feeling that you know he owns a lot of stuff because he's a millionaire right uh, or we're led to believe um but he falls so in love with this with his daughter and it's a pure love that he never quite found with scarlett o'hara that when she dies and he's still playing second fiddle in Scarlet's heart to, um, oh my God, Ashley. The uh, right. was that yeah the um, the other kind of southern aristocrat who went to sure. fight, fight in the war. Um, he's just like I'm I'm out of here. I'm done. And Scarlet, who suddenly realizes after Ashley has finally confessed that he doesn't love her, after her daughter dies and all this other stuff, she's finally like, oh, I actually do. Am I, I actually am in love with Rhett Butler. And he's like, no, I'm gone. And she's like, what am I going to do with my life? And he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And then he leaves. The entire theater applause. Like, even the people who couldn't stand up properly tried to stand up so they could give an ovation. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, so I think that they're the characters in, in, with the great uh, performances from the two leads... But the whole cast is really strong. Thomas Mitchell, Olivia de Havilland, and then the MGM art design, the costumes and the sets. You know, it, MGM didn't, they didn't have any of the grubby um, little tiny movies. They didn't have any, there's no auteur in MGM, not really, right? It's all by assembly. But when the assembly's working, I mean, they're incredible films. A lot of them, really. And I just, so I, I, this movie, it's funny because um, David Selznick, he hired a bunch of different screenwriters to work on this. And the first one was a guy named Sidney Howard, who was a, a playwright, and he did the treatment. And he said, like, there's a lot of story here to do, right? So he did a treatment. And Selznick was kind of like, eh, I don't know. And Selznick was a notorious micromanager who would give notes. There's like a, I want to say there's a few million memos he gave. Like there's so many notes and memos. But so uh, he took the treatment, hired some guys to write it. A, a whole bunch of different writers came through. Donald Ogden Stewart wrote on it for a while. He was a, a pretty well-known screenwriter. And then um, Alfred Hitchcock gave notes he was in town for Rebecca and Selznick produced Rebecca. So Alfred Hitchcock gave notes on 
he was like, hey, Alfred, could, could you like take a look at the screenplay? So he gave notes on it. And then finally, Ben Hecht, who was a great screenwriter, Victor Fleming and David Selznick, went into it. They squirreled away into a hotel room, I believe, and living on Ben's a dream, <coughs> bananas and peanuts. They grounded out over a week. Yeah. No, this, this is fact, right? And Victor Fleming bursts a blood vessel in his eye. He was working so hard. Selznick like passed out on the couch. And so, but out of that sort of crucible, they reduced the story and, you know, they like got it, right? And so the the movie in some ways is a miracle that a good film came out of all of this with George Cukor was the first, first director and he got fired. Um, not because he was a, um, the movie just wasn't shooting fast enough. They didn't like what they were seeing. So Selznick got rid of him. It wasn't because he, uh, a lot, the rumor is that Gable didn't like him, hmm. but that's, you know, I don't think that's the case. Victor Fleming comes in a great assembly line director and he, uh, he makes it, but you have all these casting decisions that are made. And so the fact that the, I, you know, the movie is a bit of a miracle that all that out of all of that comes a very tight. Okay. It's really long, but a very sort of tightly woven uh, uh, film. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing is uh, the intermission happens. It's, it's weird because I almost think it's a criticism because it was kind of predictable, but the, the intermission happens just at the almost the precise two hour mark uh, where sort of the, the all is lost on the plantation moment. You've got Scarlet standing there kind of in silhouette, like yeah. saying, as God is my witness, I will, you know, read. I'll never go hungry again. Right. I'll never so go hungry again. Right. Incredible yeah. Scene. yeah. And then it, and it breaks and you come back and it kind of becomes a completely different type of film. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I, I love is because you've got this sort of fantasy of the South, you've got it, you know, crumbling under the boot uh, of the Yankees. And it's like, okay, so where do people go from here? It's a long kind of uh, tough road and people have to step outside what they were accustomed to and just sort of build something else yeah. and something different. Uh, and, you know, the characters get much darker. There's not a lot of humor in the, in the second, uh, in the second half of this thing. Um, and yeah. that's, I think is part of its part of its impact. It's funny when you say that, it reminds me of Wizard of Oz because the first half of the movie is like charming and funny and great songs. And then basically they hit Oz. And then the movie, it's like a horror movie for kids. There's flying monkeys. There's no songs anymore. The witch is destroying people. And, you know. And that what's you say a miracle. I think it's miraculous that this and Victor Fleming's other movie from 1939 <laughs> was The Wizard of Oz. Like, yeah, how do both these movies made from the same person come out in the yeah. same year. It's, it's old Hollywood. I know it's old Hollywood though, because they, yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, and he doesn't ever get his proper due uh, because, because uh, critics are all about the auteur theory and he's not an auteur, right? So he gets kind of left out of that um, paradigm, right? So his value, like Michael Curtiz, who's another great director, oh, made yeah. a thousand great films, but he's not an artist in the way that these critics have said, right? He's, they're technical. They're technically almost perfect, right? Curtiz is another one of those, yeah, he's kind of like the Coen brothers 
it just in the sense that you ask, you know, about his filmography, you can't say, oh, he's done, you know, a dozen of this genre of films sort of all over the place. Yeah. Um, he, yeah are, are one that. of the great musicals, one of the great gangster films, some of the great dramas, right. He's some of the great crime pictures. So he, he's special, but Fleming is another one. And uh, it, you know, it's funny the the first half and the second half, when that happens, Gone with Wind's really, it's really adept at doing that. And the epic sweep of it, you buy into it. In other films, it wasn't about too, but in other films, when that happens, it always leaves me shaken and a little chilled. Like, and I don't always like it when there's a tonal shift like that. For um, me, the the most uh, jarring example in a negative way of that was uh, Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. I didn't um, like that film either. I, I like Tarantino, but that movie I hated. So, yeah, yeah I'm a huge Tarantino fan, and I I love the first half of it. But then, like yeah. the intermission, because it was at the music box during their roadshow thing, I came back and I'm like, "What the hell happened to the movie I was just watching?" Because yeah, this ain't no, it's, it. it's bad. <laughs> and that one is interesting. Yeah, I mean, that one's an interesting failure. Like, I I would be, I'm like intrigued enough by that movie to even write about it. But I I thought it was for him especially dreadful for what you're saying the movie doesn't like hold it seems to hold together but it doesn't and I, you know okay so to bring it back to gone with the wind right the, these epic films go wrong so often they're they're a lot of them are unwatchable i tried to watch um that boris pasternak movie uh adaptation the russian uh novel i'll think of the name in a minute not war and peace but the uh the about the well, whatever. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah, it was on. Is good director, right? Good writer, great cast. I'm like, this is just boring me to tears. Exodus is another one with Otto Preminger about the founding of Israel, right? Like, almost unwatchable. And everything about it works. It's got a star that you know, Paul Newman. It's got great music. It's got a good director. And so I, th that's another way Gone with the Wind is exceptional because a lot of times epics, they don't age well either. Like what's a, can you think of a movie like this that's come out in the last 20 years that you would watch again or recommend to somebody? No. RRR. <laughs> no. Um... <laughs> well, we're on different camps in that one. Even though, I know, yeah, I know, it, know. that was an epic. No, that's a big. Okay, that's a big movie. I was really going with just American films. Yeah. Um, there, there are some good ones, I guess, that are watchable. Uh, they tend to be war movies. I guess the Thin Red Line, but it's not the scale of uh, of Gone well, with the Wind. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, I've I've watched. It's tough because like Saving Private Ryan, you know, it has that kind of epic sweep to it and some other Spielberg uh, films, but there's no like romance to it. I mean, uh, the only, you know, I would think, and this is sort of an undiscussed one uh, for, for several reasons, I think, but um, Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge, yeah, uh, I thought was, was a great kind of epic and there is some romance in there, but it's sort of towards the beginning before, you know, and Andrew Garfield goes off to war. So yeah, I mean, there, there's de definitely something missing here. I, one thing I wanted to discuss real quick, kind of related to this, the epicness and the romance, the poster, I think is so misleading that epic yeah. picture of Clark Gable and Vivian Lee, Vivian Lee. I, I had like a crazy crush on both of these characters, like watching this movie. I was like, I just, yeah. I would love them to lead everything. Vivian yeah. Lee's right eyebrow should have gotten an Oscar. Right. Um, but uh, the, the, 
the the two of them on the poster together like oh this is why for you know 40 years or whatever since i was aware of this movie i thought it was a big sweeping romance that particular scene based strictly on the wardrobe because there's only one scene in which he wears that kind of like a torn white collared shirt it's when he uh pulls her in and forcibly kisses her and she's not into it i'm like out of all the the scenes you could have picked to rep represent their troubled romance you had to pick the one that was most me too-ish that's so strange <laughs> it is weird no for sure uh yeah i don't know why i mean i imagine um the back office mgm people because they distributed it i'm sure they were like we got to highlight the romance of these two hot stars you know um i have a couple of anecdotes i wanted to share with you uh, about the okay uh, a couple of things one uh, clark gable who uh, is an actor that i like and he, he's interesting and he's in a lot of good films he a lot of people don't know this or it's forgotten he's the basis of the character that jack palance plays in the big knife and in that movie jack palance is a star who's troubled and it comes out that he killed a woman in a drunk driving accident and a mid-level MGM executive took the blame and went to prison for him. This is true. This happened. Clark Gable killed a woman in a drunk driving accident, not on purpose. I mean, you know, right. and another guy to save his, the studio needed him. So they set up another guy to take the blame. Then the next film Clark Gable took was it happened one night, which he became a basically a household name. Right. But there's another America out there in the multiverse, I guess, where he <laughs> takes the, he goes to prison. And then you have uh, Errol Flynn or Ron Coleman, who were the uh, two of the names mentioned. They would have butchered the film. Neither of them would have been good at it. Maybe Errol Flynn. But um, and so there's interesting. I don't know. I always struck me as interesting. Um, the second anecdote has nothing to do, it tells about the book, but I, I can't help but share. So Paul Thoreau wrote, uh, is a writer who wrote Dark, Dark Star Safari. And in it, he recreates a trip he took in Africa a long time ago. Okay, the book came out 10 years ago or something. One of the guys he meets on the trip is an Ethiopian who was a political prisoner in an Ethiopian prison. And it's war, right? And there's nothing to do and you're mistreated. And the only thing to read in the prison was a contraband copy of Gone with the Wind. That's the only book they had in this prison. So the prisoners would share this book to read and they would keep it hidden. And so this guy who was there for years, the only thing he had to do to keep him going was he would he was translating it one page at a time onto these little cigarette, little pages out of the cigarette packs. And that's how the book got translated into Amharic. The, you know, that's how it got translated into Ethiopian. That I have a copy of George Orwell's handwritten notes and original draft of 1984. It's basically a giant coffee table oh, book of like photographs, right? Okay. Of these notes. I would love to see the cigarette oh, back translations I mean, <laughs> of this. Is this is this in an archive somewhere? Do you know like whatever know. happened to this, or is it just well, lost to the annals of being a story? I mean, Paul Thoreau, he's a great writer, but he doesn't, he's not like a historian. I mean, it's not, this is just a guy I met. I, I bet it exists somewhere, but I just thought this was incredible. And anyway, the guys, Pat Conroy, who I quoted earlier said that anyone who's been in a war, 
anyone who, sorry, anyone who's lost a war can, will love the novel and, or find themselves in the novel and in the movie, right? He says this. And I think the Ethiopian guy also felt that way, right? And I do think part of the appeal is it, I mean, I've criticized the movie myself uh, along cultural lines, but as a story that these various characters go through this horrible war and come out in some, they come out the other side of it and recreate themselves. It's, uh, it's haunting and enduring, but also it's, you know, it's rousing stuff. And when I mentioned the other epics that don't quite make it, like Saving Private Ryan, it takes place over like a week. And it doesn't follow the characters later. Uh, okay, Best Years of Our Lives, which is, okay, it's not a new movie. It's from the 48 or something. Best Years of Our Lives, epic film about soldiers who come back from the war. And it just follows their everyday lives. Trying. Have you seen this movie? No. Oh, well, it's great. But I've, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It just follows them trying to rebuild. And it's only one half of Gone with the Wind, right? The second half. And I feel like a lot of movies are one half or the other. And what makes it you know, unique is that it gives you uh, this incredible... Oh, Dr. Zhivago, by the way, that was the... That's the... Okay, Dr. Zhivago. Oh, movie, okay, actually. yeah. Uh, it's bad. I mean, I say I want to like it. It has uh, bits that are fine. It's a good director, but I don't think I've made it all the way through that one. It's hard to do a movie like this. That's my point. I mean, near impossible. And uh, yeah, part of the magic. And I don't think anyone can, I do think it comes out of the characters, but part of the magic of the film is that it manages to pull it off. Yeah. I mean, that's the, there is a weird morality problem around, you know, kind of celebrating gone with the wind. And I understand that, um, you know, I am half black heritage wise, but I never had that kind of cultural black experience where I've talked to people about gone with the wind who've been kind of troubled by it or you know whatever but it is it's a strange thing to try and reconcile because there are people who are upset over it the same people who would revere this movie as a cultural you know artifact i wonder if they have the same problem who criticize this movie in a lot of ways maybe they haven't watched it because i don't know that you can come away from this movie and think of it as a celebration of the people who perpetuated slavery. It's a, it's kind yeah. of a weird, it's a condemnation of that. Now they don't get their kind of cultural comeuppance. And at the end, you kind of, based on the kind of character that Scarlett O'Hara is that she's presented over these years in this four hour film, you kind of get the sense that it's going to be difficult for her, but she is going to, I hate to use this phrase, rise again. Um, oh yeah. But it's not, you know, it's not like there's a, you know, a fist waving, you know, I, I we got to get slavery back kind of message at the end of this film. The movie's just not about that. And I can understand it'd be kind of troubling, but, you know, a couple of bits of weird context to it. And this is not a new idea, but, you know, slavery has, it's not a uniquely American phenomenon and that doesn't right. make it right, but it is the people of that time and earlier times up until essentially we ended slavery when it had the big war to, to wipe it off of America's books. 
it was a global phenomenon. I mean, it's still going on in some parts of the world. And, you know, that's sort of a credit to the people who fought and, and died for it and upheld it all these decades is that we're trying to be that, that beacon of, of hope and promise. But the other kind of weird aspect to it is I look at the people who are, you know, on Terra, the giant plantation and gone with the wind. I think, how could they not think about the plight of the people that they have enslaved, the people that are working for them, even though they do have this sort of sort of familiar relationship with with Mammy and Prissy and, and some of the other you know house staff. They don't really consider them part of the family. I, I get the feeling that they're if there was any kind of like real uh, uprising on their part, they got too far out of line, they'd be put back in their place. And I wonder how could that happen? And then I think about where we are today and like the technology that you and I are talking on, the devices, the devices we carry around in our pocket, in a lot of cases are made by slave labor. Now, the, the difference is there are slaves in countries that we don't have to think about. We don't have to see, you know, the story is about suicide nets around the Apple, like Foxcom, you know, factories is at least 10 years old. And there are punchlines for jokes, by the way. Right. Punchlines for punch, jokes. Punchlines for a lot of jokes too. Right. Like night TV comedians. Everyone made a lot of hay out of that without realizing these are people's. They're so miserable. Right. They're trying to kill themselves. So that we and, can. So so we can right. watch YouTube videos. Correct. Uh, more conveniently, and and the assurances from Apple and these other companies, like, oh, we got rid of the nets. We've improved conditions. I mean, I don't care if you got rid of the nets. Did you get rid of the reasons that people wanted to use them? Right. So. My question is, 80 years from now, are people going to be making movies about this period of our time? And there is there going to be social outrage from the descendants of the people who are making these devices saying, how could you carry on and not think about the consequences of all this stuff that you were enjoying in luxury? So that's why I one of the reasons I can't get that upset about a movie like Gone with the Wind. I was like, because everybody has we are all guilty of ignoring things, whether they're right in our faces or, you know, thousands of miles away. And it's almost worse when it's a thousand miles away. Yeah. There's a, there's a line. I, I mean, I don't remember who said it, but um, every day I'm implicated in the cruelties of the world just by being alive. Right. And yeah. it's true um, that they, we will be, I mean, I'll go you one further and say that historians um, a few hundred years hence, we'll study the United States as a factory for serial killers, right? I mean, we have thousands, we have so many here. Here's us, and then here's everyone else. India, I think, second, and then way down. And that's so disturbing. Like, what is going on in our country that we are producing one after another of these uh, uh, dangerous mur serial murderers? Right. And uh, I, I don't I don't know the answer, but I'm saying that the in, in the, you know, the mining of the rare minerals in the Congo or Congo, you know, Congo, I yeah. Congo, I had a friend from there I played soccer with. And even he he lived here. He was divorced from the misery and the reality there. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't know. He was like he had an iPhone. He was like, I don't you know, because I, I asked him, I was like, how bad is it? Right. And he was like, I just, you know, and so I, I agree, but I, I think, and, and, but, but here, here, it's tricky because a, there won't be any films made about that. 
uh, well, I, there'll be documentaries. I mean, but there, well, there, okay. There was that, uh, wait, there was that weird stop motion, of, uh, about the Belgian, um, what was it called? Piece of cake or something like that. I mean, but there won't be an there won't be this kind of money and class put into an epic film about the owners of lithium mines in African countries. Well, but right? here's the thing. I'm not even saying that you need to. I'm saying that, you know, take a movie like The Social Network or any any of those movies about, yeah, a great film, or any of those, you know, biopics about Steve Jobs and the rise of Apple. Right. Someone who is a descendant of the people who are making the devices, right? The people, yeah. you know, when, when the, I think one of those Jobs movies came out around the time that the Foxconn controversy happened, if they were to come out or that their, you know, descendants later and say, you're making a movie about a guy who was making a product based on something that killed, you know, 80 members Foul. of my family. So many. Yeah. So many people. Right. right. It's so I'm not, I'm not saying you have to have a movie that's explicitly about someone who owns a factory and the, the horrible conditions, much in the same way that with Gone with the Wind, that slavery, the, the, the enslavement, uh, you know, of the people there, there are a couple of scenes where you see them coming in from the fields or talking in the fields. Uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's what this whole thing is built on, which I think is good for the context of people watching the film. But right. it doesn't get to the horrors that you'd see in like 12 Years a Slave um, <clears throat> and that kind of a deal. But it doesn't have to be. And it's almost it's more chilling when you think, oh, this is just a happy go lucky movie or a drama where you're really supposed to care about is Steve Jobs going to going to make it and become this influential designer who gets all these devices in the hands of millions of people all the world over and makes them so addicted that they have to get the new one year after year, which means it's going to be harder on the people making them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating point. You know, I guess I hadn't I hadn't connected it to our contemporary times, really. I think um, we I mean, I think films, I think to the films, racism or non-racism, like you can watch a movie from 20 years ago and it will blister your eyeballs with <laughs> the values, right? Um, and the, the, a different kind of racism, different types of racism uh, on display. Uh, and you can watch a movie made right now that will be criticized because of the point of view that it focuses on 15 years from now, right? So it's, I mean, in a way it's easy, in a way it's easy bait. It's an easy game to play now, I think, in a way. But I think what you're talking about is a serious, like philosophical, it's like a serious beef with popular entertainment in a way, if you expect too much of it. Right. I say in, in the book, in the South Never Plays Itself, that it's a great film, but bad history. Right. Hmm. And I can I'm OK with that. I, I can accept like that the movie a movie can't either doesn't want to be or can't be both. Right. But a movie can be a great, a good film and cause a lot of harm that Gone with the Wind is not causing. I, I don't think right itself people are like using it for harmful things but unlike birth of a nation which is truly outrageous um it is outrageous but it also i think can be appreciated 
on you know several levels as an artistic you know achievement. Sure, I, but that, well, here's the that, thing: like in the, between the time that we've spoken to each other, uh, I've developed a kind of a, a relationship and a, and a friendship with uh, with Armand White, the uh, the controversial uh, film critic, um, who you know has challenged me on a number of things. One was to to watch um, uh, Birth of a Nation and then Griffith's follow-up film, Intolerance. I think we watched right. one other. Uh, but to talk about them, because I had just, like a lot of people, I had heard the reputation of the film. I'm like, it's just, it's going to be, you know, people parading, well, swastikas weren't a thing back when that came around, but yeah, sure. it's parading clan uh, robes and hoods, and there's no story. It's just all like rah, 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 white people. And it's a more complicated story than that, right? And it's yeah. something that I think if more people, like with Gone with the Wind, were challenged, to actually sit down and watch the material and think about it before they open their mouths or their Twitter pr accounts, then the conversation would be a lot different. But they're never going to do richer. that. Yeah. And, but Twitter is not, I mean, we're not like set up that way. I, I was just drawing a contrast though, between the two films. I, I, I actually don't mean to bring up Birth of Nation because part of the problem is it keeps getting brought up when Gone with the Wind gets, because they cover the same time period basically. But uh, I mean, when we do that, Again, if someone were like critiquing um, the menu and brought up a movie from like 1995, right? That's like what you're doing, which is who would do that? Like you wouldn't talk about seven. You would go, oh, the menu, you know, but it's like seven or something. I mean, it's weird, right? But um, I was just saying, I was trying to draw though a distinction between like depictions in the film. Because Selznick wanted, he did, he was, I mean, in his way for the time period, he was very... Uh, he was pretty sensitive to this. Well, that's the that's the other other thing is that you think about this movie that has this you know horribly racist reputation. It was a product of its time, but it was also a product of Hollywood, which you know even today when I hear people talk about like oh Hollywood's racist past and all the terrible things that that people before were doing and they're referencing things from twenty years ago. I'm like, well, aren't you the same crowd that was in charge twenty years ago? Like, where where is this? Sure this awakening or this you know wokeness or whatever coming from it it seems like a lot of weird butt covering well they um, have money there's money in it now so they're gonna like move towards it i think i yeah. I, I think hollywood was has did no better or no worse probably better than other segments of our country sure. um, and and worse a little bit in a few ways but uh well, yeah. the, I, I just read before he jumped on, I was looking up Hattie McDaniel and, and her Oscar speech, which is, you know, I'll actually link to it below. It's it's really something. It is. But something. the fact that she was not, you know, this is liberal Hollywood, and she was nominated for and won an Academy Award, a historic achievement. She was still not allowed to sit with the rest of the cast of Gone with the Wind at the ceremony. And um, she wasn't invited to the Atlanta, uh, the premiere yeah. in Atlanta. And Clark Gable, to his credit, wasn't going to go. And she's talked to him and said, look, you got to go. We, I need, we all need the movie to do well, you know, but can you imagine that conversation? I mean, you know, but she knew she was, but it's funny, right? She was very canny. I mean, very famously said, Hey, I'd rather play a maid than be one. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't, I didn't invent the world. I live in it and I'm, you know, I, she had talent, a lot of talent. And, but you, 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 your heart breaks when you think about the other film roles that people like Academy Daniel didn't get. I mean, because they were consigned to uh, porters and maids and, and, you know, babysitters and that, you know, whatever, that kind of stuff. Uh, but great role, you know, yeah. I mean, and she's remembered. How many actresses are remembered 
from 1939, right? That aren't the four or five marquee names. None, but Patty McDaniel, right? So it's yeah. like th this, I don't know. I don't know what that means. You know, I don't either. It's, <laughs> but I mean, maybe but nothing. I, well, but I'm glad we're having this conversation because if folks out there are watching this and you haven't seen Gone with the Wind, you know, I'm not going to criticize you for once because usually I'm like, why are you watching this? But I think it's it's uh, a movie that more people should see and have to kind of wrestle with because it's not an easy film to discuss or even to think about for all the reasons we've laid out here. And I think more. Um, but I think, you know, I, I do want to kind of wrap up here. Yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts on Gone with the Wind before we talk about something else, something for the future? Uh, I'll say uh, just a couple quick things. One, uh, you should watch it in pieces. Uh, it's easier to watch it in four pieces or two pieces instead of trying to sit for the running time. If Maybe, you, let if, me let me cut in. Let me cut in. Yeah. Maybe. I actually thought about this too. I mean, if you can see it on a big screen. Of course. I think I you can it. go and see it, you know, uh, in, a, in a theater, especially like an old art house theater. It's great. Uh, I wish I could also, do that. Well, you know, I don't think there'd be any revivals of the movie coming around anytime soon. But no. um, but the other thing is, I was thinking about like, who's going to sit through a four-hour movie? And I thought, People binge like eight hour Netflix series, like in a weekend, you know, where they'll sit down and they'll yeah. stay up all night to watch the latest, you know, Disney plus show or whatever. So I think it can be done. I, it might just be a reframing of like, I'm not going to watch a four hour movie. I'm going to watch four Netflix episodes. That's a, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, I guess I meant though that you're not locked into watching it in one lump and you could watch, you can take the intermission break and then pick it up. Uh, I watch long films that way only because my life is busy. And so that's the way to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but two, I would just say um, there's so many different ways to watch it. The easiest one, the easiest one is to try to like look for flaws and gaps from like 2023. 20, and that's to, to miss, that's a uh, form to me, it's almost myopic to, to miss the artistry and the, the talent and the music, which we didn't talk about, and the the, the stunning cinematography, and uh, uh, the technique and the technical know-how, and the you know all of that gets swept away when you're just like that, ah, you know, it says stuff that that I, I think is kind of bad now, and I guess that that temptation you should resist when you're watching an old film, uh, you know, and you shouldn't let it get in the way. Let's put it that way. Right. I think I think the biggest hurdle for a modern audience who hasn't seen this and I don't want to disparage anybody, but is probably just pressing play, you know, yeah. uh, just the idea of like, I'm not going to watch that movie. I've heard about it. But I mean, just to the artistry point, uh, you know, my last kind of point here is there's a bit where Scarlett, I think, is walking through town. She's going to try and find a doctor because her sister in law is about to have a baby. Um, we see. I think I'm getting this scene, right? Cause there's a lot of the scenes in the long movie, but there's a scene where she encounters like bodies in the street and the camera pans out and you see there's more bodies. And then by the time it gets to the full wide shot, it's the entire main street of the town is just littered with people who are dying dead in need of some kind of attention. And you realize this isn't digital. It's not a matte painting. Yeah. It's a giant scene of like, what has to be hundreds of extras, something I haven't seen contemporary except for RRR. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> right. But no, so yeah, thanks, Ben, for for talking about Gone with the Wind with me. I, uh, I really enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed this conversation. Um, me too, Ian. 
I'm looking forward to a future future conversations. Yeah. Because you've got another book coming out at some point soon. Tell me about that. So it's called The Bad Class. And it's the kind of punk, the angry punk version of The South Never Plays Itself. It's only about four films, really. Um, Class of 1984, Bad Boys, The Outsiders, and Repo Man. And it's about my childhood in Pensacola, Florida. And it's also about um, a friendship that enigmatically dissolved. And so it's about those things. Yeah, there's a personal component. There's a, a yeah. So I've been haunted by, well, I, fought, I watched Class of 1984 um, on TV when I was like eight. <laughs> and I know it's a, uh, it's a great, it's a great sort of exploitation film and I'm hoping I can come back and talk about it. So I won't talk about yeah. it long here, but I'll say it's a re it's a kind of vicious early eighties remake of Blackboard Jungle, but instead of um, the teacher kind of connecting with the street toughs and, and, and making a difference in their lives um, it goes like horribly wrong. So that that is the starting point. And then I walk through those those films. There's some politics of the early 80s, too. And I was only I was a real young kid in the early 80s. But I watched all these films with a friend of mine who then sort of ghosted me. So I'm that's like part of what the book's about. Well, I can't wait to talk about it. And I'll send you, you a copy. It's supposed to be fun. Oh, awesome. Yeah, well, it's uh, you don't have a release date for it yet, but I want to try and plan I'm just okay. kind of springing this on you now. I want to talk about, I don't know if we talk about the book first or if we like talk about the individual films leading into the book or how we okay. want to do it. Cause I want to, I have not seen, I think of the four movies you mentioned, I think I've seen one, I've seen the outsiders. Right. The others That's are the going to be one. kind of, yeah, they're going to be first views for me. So we'll, we'll, well talk about this. Uh, let me just say, and for anyone listening, bad boys is as good a movie as you'll see, it is wonderful. It is not an exploit. It's exploitative in a way. It's about juvenile delinquents in a juvenile delinquent center in Illinois, but it's got incredible performances and an A-list. Um, it actually has A-list talent, even though it, unlike the other, uh, even though it feels um, it's really nasty. Right. And it was on TV all the time when I was a kid, it was on TBS all the time and then they just stopped showing it right uh it was like up there with like those chuck norris movies and conan the barbarian it was like on a lot <laughs> so clearly they got it turner got it for like a cheap right and they would show it late at night but so anyway um and i'll i'm happy to come back and talk about any of the four or all four but all four. class of 1984 bad boys the outsiders is the one that everyone's seen and, and then Repo Man, which is the weirdest, it's the kind of cultiest. A lot of people have seen that too. Um, and then I have a kind of epilogue. So yeah, that's the book. And it, I, I hope I hope it comes out soon. I mean, everything's in. It's just waiting for the publisher to, um, you know, put it out and publish it. Print it yeah. and <laughs> publish it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. We'll we'll make some plans. We'll figure out the smartest way to to tackle this. Um, I, would love I, that. I, I want to talk about all four of those and the book. So Ben Beard, thank you so much. Uh, the South never plays itself is still on sale. I'm going to leave still a link to, to it yeah. down uh, in the description. So check that out. Ben, uh, where can people keep up with what you're up to? I don't, I'm not on Twitter uh, because I think it's ruining our 
civilization, whatever <laughs> we have left. And I, um, I have a website. I also have a blog that I have uh, that I have put on hold. But I'm, I'm going to. I have an essay that's going to be coming out soon. I mean, I have stuff that's going to be coming out. But I've been working. I'm working more on longer projects. So I'm not. My online footprint is pretty, uh, pretty uh, spare. And I, I kind of. I'm thinking that might be the smarter way to exist in the world. But um, if you look for me. Just I I have my website is bwbeard.com, but it's got some bunch of stuff on it. But that's where I'll be putting when the new books come out. Because I have another book too that's uh, that should be not too. I won't talk about it now, but not too long from now should be should also be coming out. So, all right. Well, keep me posted, and I'll keep all right, posted. Everything. Thanks, so, buddy. Thank you. Thank you much. Uh, take care, and we'll talk soon. I'm excited. All right. Thank you, man. All right. Thank you. Bye.